let me ask you, what are the essential things, just the essential things you take with you every time you leave the house? What are the, just the essential things you take with you each and every time you leave the house? Phone? Keys? Okay, so, so keys, phone, did I hear? Water. Water. <laughs> Water. Close. Okay, yes, close, yes, okay. Yes, yes, yes. That wallet, right? What did you say? Sunglasses? Credit card? Credit card, okay. Anyone else? What are these? These the essential things. You don't leave home without them. Shoes? Yes. My things are these three things. Keys, because I can't get in my car without it. My wallet, because I need to drive. And my phone. So three, at least for me, essential items every time I leave the house. Now, what about when you go to church? Hold on. Do you think there's anything else you need, anything else essential you need to take with you when you go to church? And if so, what might that, that, that be? Bible, that's a great answer. Your iPad, right? Ben said his bass guitar, and we're very thankful that Brandon brings his bass guitar, aren't we, every week? A pen, yeah? Journal? Well, those, those are all great answers. Those are all great answers. Uh, um, this Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to take a break from our study of 2 Samuel, and instead we're going to study Psalm 92. And as several commentators have pointed out, this psalm was a song that God's people sang when they gathered together for worship on the Sabbath. And what you need to know is that this psalm is instructive. That is to say, it has been written, please hear me, to remind God's people of a very important truth. You see, there is something essential that God's people need to bring with them every time they gather for worship. And sadly, it's often something that can be forgotten. However, based on our text this morning, I'm going to argue that this essential item, this thing we need to bring with us every time we gather together for worship, it's not only essential for proper worship of God, but I'm going to suggest for all of life. Indeed, this essential item, I think, is the key that can free us, and I'm not trying to oversell this, that can free us from much of the emotional turmoil many of us experience. And what is that essential item? Well, let's, let's find out together. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 92. If you're in need of a Bible, we have some Bibles in the seat in front of you. And Psalm 92 is found on page 498 in that white paperback Bible. And follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read Psalm 92. 
Notice the header. It says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And the psalmist writes this. He says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, in all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil my eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And notice they're, they're bearing a certain kind of fruit, and that is to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Interact with me here. If, if you were having a good day and someone came up to you and said, how are you doing? Tell me, what is the proper response? Is it, I'm doing good? Or is it, I'm doing well? Which one is it? I'm doing well. And, and you know why that is, don't you? Doing well means you yourself are happy and content. Doing good means you are actually doing something good. You're, that is, you're active in some way, right? In the passage I just read... The psalmist states that there is something good that all Christians should be active in doing. Indeed, this is the very thing God's people need to be reminded to bring with them every time they gather together for corporate worship. And you know what that is? That is a 
thankful heart to the Lord. Notice how clearly this assertion is made in the opening verse. Have your eyes fall there once again. Did you see it there in verse 1? The psalmist says what? It is good to give thanks to who? The Lord. In Psalm 107, we are told to give thanks to the Lord because He is good. In this psalm, we are to give thanks to the Lord because that act in and of itself is good. Christian, every time you intentionally give thanks to the Lord, you are the top one. You are doing good. You are doing something honorable, right, and pleasing to the Lord. And what I hope to show you over the next couple of minutes is that as the psalmist um, develops this thought throughout the rest of the chapter, that his main point becomes clear, and I think it's this, and that is, He's getting at this idea, and that is he's inviting us to cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. Cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. This, I want to argue, is the main point of this psalm. He starts by saying it is good to give thanks to the Lord, and then he develops this thought throughout the rest of the chapter. Now, uh, we just celebrated Thanksgiving this past Thursday, and I want to make sure that we properly understand what this text is actually calling us to do. Okay? Uh, please hear me. It's very important that we understand that there's a distinction between gratitude and giving thanks. They're not the same. It's one thing to be grateful it's another to give thanks. Put it this way, gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. And I want you to see that giving thanks, it's an action that must be learned. Think about how we do this with our children when they are young. What do we tell our young kids every time someone gives them something? We tell them to say what? Say thank you. You know why? Because in our natural state, please hear me, we are so self-focused that we believe we are entitled to whatever is given to us. We need to be taught to give thanks. In fact, this is one of the telltale symptoms of a heart that is living for itself rather than Christ. A person who is living for themselves lacks any sense of gratefulness. Indeed, they are not only entitled, but quite often, those that are living for themselves are constantly immersed in self-pity, feeling bad for all the things they want, but they do not have. Thankfulness is nowhere on their radar. And maybe that's you this morning. If you had to be honest, you would say that you are really experiencing quite a bit of emotional turmoil. You are caught in a tornado, as it were, of self-pity where all you can think about and what you're consumed about is all the things you have not received but that you really, really want. 
And friend, I want to encourage you that this text is a lifeline to you. It's going to, I hope you're going to see here in a moment, it's going to invite you out of the mire of self-pity by taking your focus off of yourself and intentionally setting your gaze upon something so much glorious and more wonderful than you, and that's the Lord. To see afresh who he is and what he has done, and then in proper response to give thanks. This text is calling you to do good and give thanks to the Lord. And I want to be sensitive enough to, to understand that some of you might be thinking, okay, Aaron, what if I don't feel like praising and thanking God? What should I do then? I mean, is that not hypocrisy? I don't feel like praising the Lord, but then I'm supposed to praise and thank Him anyway? Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung succinctly and appropriately answers that question. He writes this. He says, professing one thing in public and living a different way in private is hypocrisy. Doing what is right when we don't feel like it, that's maturity. So friends, don't believe the lie that if right now you don't feel like you ought to give thanks to the Lord, that giving thanks is hypocrisy. No, it's not. As you lean in to obey the commands of God, that's Christian maturity. So here's a question I want us to consider. How? How can we walk in maturity? How can we cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord? Well, one of the things that I love about this psalm is that the psalmist not only clearly gives reasons for why we ought to give thanks to the Lord, but in so doing, he also models for us how we can actually cultivate thanksgiving in our hearts to God. And there are several things I'd like to draw to your attention as he models for us what we must do to produce a life of thanksgiving to the Lord. And the first action we must take is this, and that is we must contemplate his great works. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Here is his thesis statement at the beginning. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and to the harp and to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your what? Work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. The psalmist is contemplating, intentionally contemplating the great works of God. Now, to no one's surprise, I am a very big hockey fan. And last month, NHL center and star, I would add, Connor McDavid stunned the sports world with, the, with what is arguably the most incredible goal of the entire season thus far. Connor McDavid, and this is not frequent in NHL hockey, he literally skated through all five of the opposing players and then went on the goalie and scored. I, I, have, I have it here for you to enjoy as well. <laughs> uh, there, there's no audio. Let's see if this works. So there he is. 
And there they are, and he goes right through them, and he scores. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I almost heard an applause there. That's right, that's right. Okay. okay. Okay, as great as that is, remarkably, a couple weeks ago, he did almost the exact same thing to the Winnipeg Jets. Skating through the entire team and then scoring a goal. And you know what I did the first time I saw that video of Connor McDavid skating through all the team, all the players, and scoring? I sent it to all my friends. Through Instagram, you know, you can send... Anyway. Anyway, I sent it to all my friends. Not only that, the next day, everyone I saw, I couldn't help but tell them, look, did you see what Connor McDavid did last night in the game? Right? Now, you know why I did that? It's not simply because I'm a hockey fan. No, I, I sent that to all everyone I knew. I talked about it to everyone I came in contact with because of this truth, and that is you praise what impresses you. You praise, you exalt, you make much of those things that impress you. Things that impress us, we cannot help but praise. Notice the psalmist is literally shouting with thanksgiving to the Lord. And you know why that is? It's because he is impressed. Yea, he is overwhelmed at the Lord's great work. He is moved by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. In his commentary on this psalm, John Calvin notes that we never lack matter for praising God unless we're too lazy to see it. Because, he goes on to say, his goodness and faithfulness are incessant to his people. As Calvin goes on to say, we need to discipline ourselves to contemplate God's great works. Calvin writes this. He says, as our minds are inconstant, we are apt, when exposed to various distractions, to wander from God. We need to be disentangled from all cares if we would seriously apply ourselves to the praises of God. If, friend, you are having a hard time feeling like you ought to praise God, could I encourage you to make this first stop on your journey, and that is to be intentional in contemplating the great works of God. In fact, Christian, when was the last time you did that? And please hear me, I'm not referring to merely circumstantial provisions. How often do you contemplate his great work in redeeming your sinful soul? How often do you ponder your once helpless, hellbound state outside of Christ? How frequently do you think deeply about his continued faithfulness to you even though you sin against him daily? 
Christian, have you ever considered his great love towards you in allowing all things to work for your good and his glory? How about his promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you, though you often turn from him in your sin? Indeed, I think it's even appropriate this Christmas season. Christian, have you taken the time to ponder what it cost the Lord Jesus Christ to leave his throne in heaven, to take on human flesh, and to bear our sins on the cross so that you could be forgiven? Have you contemplated his work in justifying you through his resurrection? Christian, what I'm asking, have you contemplated the great works of the Lord? And indeed, are you actively doing that? Is that part of the rhythm of your life? What are you filling your thoughts and your mind with? Faith, you know why there are churches that are filled with teenagers, and even adults for that matter, that are absolutely bored out of their minds? You know why right now in churches there are adults and teenagers falling asleep in church because they're bored out of their minds? You know why that is? It's because they are not impressed with God. Rather, they are more impressed with what their friends are wearing or what their friends are doing. They're more impressed with the fading glory of this world. They are not impressed with the creator of the universe. And you know why they're not impressed with God who sits on high? It's, it's not because God is boring. No, it's because they have not contemplated the things of God. Faith, we are to cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. And you know how we do that? It's by contemplating the works of God. The more we look at what he has done, the more we see his glory and majesty, the more impressed we will be, and we will give thanks to him. We praise what impresses us. And we see this all around us. I mean, I, I recently heard about a young man who got a radio, and he so enjoyed this radio, and after staring at it and looking at it carefully for several hours, he then began to take it apart to see how it worked. And as he began to take it apart and see how masterfully it had been built and the thought and care behind every screw and every, every instrument in there, he became impressed with the genius of the one who created the radio. Faith, when you begin to study this book and you look closely at how it is put together, you'll be more impressed with God. When you come to understand His ways, when you behold His glory and majesty, not only will the praise and glory of man seem trivial to you, but you will also not be able to keep yourself from giving thanks to the Lord. This is why, and just as a, as a really helpful, I hope, application to us as a church collectively that we need to know, this is why preaching ought not be a glorified TED Talk. Rather, it ought to be a faithful exposition of a text 
that ultimately points to the glory, majesty, and splendor of Jesus. Amen? For when our hearts and minds are impressed with him, we will praise him. Indeed, we'll do as the psalmist does and give thanks. And before I go any further, I, I just want to, it would be inappropriate of me to not ask, friend, we're talking about contemplating the things, the great works of the Lord. Friend, have you put your trust in the Lord? Has there been a moment in time where you've actually contemplated your sin and your need for a Savior and you've seen what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Having Jesus Christ live the perfect life you failed to live, then die the death you are owed for your sin and then be raised from the dead? Have you seen the work of Christ and how that is sufficient to save you simply by faith? Friends, don't contemplate your own righteousness to save you. No, put your hope and trust completely, not in yourself, but in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is sufficient to save. But then second, I think this psalm invites us to trust God's wisdom, his deep wisdom. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Now we're going to see the wisdom of man played out. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. In the 1940 Disney movie Pinocchio, an Italian woodworker named Geppetto builds a wooden marionette who he wishes to be a real boy. Then during the night, a blue fairy brings that wooden marionette to life, though he's still a puppet. And the marionette's name, of course, is what? Pinocchio. Pinocchio. That's right. Well, right after the blue fairy leaves, Pinocchio meets a small little person. What's the person? A little... That's right, Jiminy Cricket. He's not a person, he's a cricket. Jiminy Cricket. And Jiminy Cricket, he sits Pinocchio down and they have a talk. And he tells him, he says, look, Pinocchio, the world is difficult and hard to navigate. So Jiminy then offers Pinocchio some advice. And tell me, what does he tell Pinocchio to always be his guide? Come on, people, we know this movie. What is it? And always let your conscience be your guide. Yes. Remember that, some of you? Now, while I don't agree with Jiminy Cricket's advice, he is correct in saying that the world is difficult. And the truth is, we all are looking to something to be our guide. Each person in this room is trusting some kind of wisdom to help them navigate life. And friend, at the end of the day, there are only two options. The wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. You will be trusting one or the other. And in the verses I just read, we see, I want to argue, the wisdom of man on full display. 
For what is the wisdom of man? Is it not this? Is not the constant beat that we see in Scripture and then affirmed in the world, is not the wisdom of man this, that sin is the path to joy? Is it not that life without God is best and that sin is pleasurable? Notice, this is what the stupid man believes. He looks at the momentary and fleeting pleasures of this world. He looks at the momentary, pushing, good to see you guys, pleasures of the evildoer, and he concludes that the wisdom of man is supreme. He cannot understand, nor does he want to understand, the works and the ways of God. And notice, where does such worldly wisdom lead? It leads to death. But that is not the wisdom of God. Notice, God's wisdom is deep. And you know why God's wisdom is deep? It's because God is enthroned on high. The evil are doomed to destruction, but the Lord, the psalmist says, is on high forevermore. And what I want to do is I want to point out, friend, that there's a direct connection between our trust in God's wisdom and giving thanks. You see, our God who is enthroned on high, He is at work in our lives doing all things for His glory and our good. God is, God is not passive in how He acts upon His wisdom. No, He is active. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he takes the exhortation we see here in Psalm 92 one step further by telling us that it is God's will for you, Christian, that you would give thanks, Paul writes, in all circumstances. So you're to give thanks to God when you hit your sales quota and when you get laid off at work. You're to praise God and give thanks to God when you make gains in the gym or when you're lying sick in bed. You're to give thanks to God when you experience the sweetness of friendship and the deep pain of betrayal. The Bible moves us towards this admonition that is to give thanks in all circumstances. This, the Bible says, is God's will for you. Now, this is not to say you don't have seasons of mourning and grief when suffering loss. And this does not mean that we're always cheerful and perky. But what it does mean is that amidst all the emotions one might experience when going through a painful season, there's an attitude and a disposition of thankfulness to the Lord. And why is that? Why should I give thanks to God after losing my job? Why should I give thanks to God as some of you currently experience are suffering some kind of chronic pain? Well, the Bible is not silent on the issue. The reason we're to give thanks to God in all circumstances is because of God's wisdom. And in His wisdom, whose thoughts are very deep, He uses all circumstances, especially the difficult ones, to grow us into the character and likeness of His Son. Isn't it what Paul writes in Romans 8.28? He says, And we know that God causes all things to work together 
for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The issue is, whose definition of good are we understanding in this verse? We know that God causes all things to work together for good, meaning that God would make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. In his outstanding book, Trusting God, author Jerry Bridges makes this helpful insight. He writes this. He says, We see a very close connection between the promise of Romans 8.28 and the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We are to give thanks in everything because we know that in all things, God is at work for our good. This is why Paul says we're to give thanks in all circumstances. Faith, the wisdom of man is to pursue sin. The wisdom of God calls us to pursue righteousness and to trust him, to trust that he is wise, and that in his wisdom he's orchestrating the events of our lives to bring about Christ-likeness in us. And the third thing, quickly, I want to point to your attention is to cultivate thanksgiving we are to rejoice that his victory is certain. This is what verse 9 is all about. Look there when he says, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. We serve a God, do we not, who will have the final victory over all his enemies. And our God will prevail, amen? And this alone is worthy of us giving praise to the Lord. Then the last thing I want to draw your attention to is that to cultivate thanksgiving, you must remember, in contrast to the evildoer, that God's people will flourish. We see this in verses 10, 11, and then notice what he says in verse 12. He says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. If, if you were to drive to our home and take a peek in our backyard... Uh, you would have a hard time seeing any grass. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, one of them being, for the life of me, I cannot seem to grow the stuff, no matter how hard I try. But if you're to do it this afternoon, there's another reason why you wouldn't see any grass, and that's because our backyard is absolutely covered in leaves. And this is because we have an abundance of mature, tall trees in our backyard. And you know what I've noticed about trees and grass? I've noticed this. That grass, even the most lush grass, is here today and gone tomorrow. It really isn't that long-lasting. But you know what? That's not the case with trees. No, every year, the trees in my backyard, they continue to grow and to sprout leaves. Is this to say... When we talk about longevity, there's no comparison between the longevity of grass versus a tree, at least in my yard. 
Notice what the psalmist says about God's people in verse 12. In contrast to the wicked who flourish temporarily like grass in verse 7, the psalmist writes in verse 12 that the righteous flourish like trees. And friend, we must remember this if we're going to cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. It is the people of the Lord who flourish, not the wicked, both now and for eternity. But even more than that, notice, God's people will bear fruit in their old age. I love the, the, the wording there in verse 14. It says, they are ever full of sap and green. They bear fruit in their old age. And you know what? That's some of you. Some of you are mature trees. You have been faithfully planted in the house of the Lord. This is to say, you have made church and your personal walk with the Lord a joyful priority. So like Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, you do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, your inner self is being renewed day by day. And you know what? Much like those mature trees in our yard that provide shade and comfort, Christian member of this church, so you too, you a mature tree, you do the same for this church body. And what I want you to see is that one of the best types of fruit you can bear at this season in your life is verse 15. Namely, that you testify to the rest of the congregation that the Lord is upright, that He is a rock, and that there is no unrighteousness in Him. Because you know who needs to hear that? Us. Saplings. <laughs> Everyone does. You know why? So that we would cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. Mature Christian, is that what you're doing? Do you see yourself in this role as described at the end of this psalm? Are you purposing to be firmly planted in the courts, in the house of the Lord, to be with his people? Are you diligently cultivating your walk with the Lord daily? And what is it you're giving time and attention to? Is it complaining? Is it expressing all your frustrations in your old age? Is it griping about how things aren't going the way you want them to go? Or is your testimony full of declaring that the Lord is upright? He is good and He does good. That there's no unrighteousness in Him and that He is to be trusted. Oh, my prayer for us as a church is first one of thanksgiving that we have mature trees that are doing this and to keep doing it, but that the God would raise up in this congregation a forest, a forest of trees that are full of green and sap 
that reaches to the branches that continue to bear fruit in old age. And that we would give thanks to God. Faith, this week I have no doubt someone's going to come up to you and say, how are you? How are you doing? And while your day may not be going as well as you had hoped, I pray that you would say to them with a clear conscience, I'm doing good because you are intentionally giving thanks to God. You're cultivating the practice to give thanks to the Lord in each and every circumstance. Amen? Let's pray.